Good evening. I'm Vernon Reed, the chairman of the Pratt's Board of Directors and Trustees. On behalf of our wonderful board, Carla Hayden, our tremendous CEO, and her very talented staff, thank you very much. I would like to welcome you, each of you, to the Central Library, to those of you in the main hall, and also those in the Wheeler Auditorium. We see roughly 500 down here, and I think we have another 250 in the Wheeler Auditorium on the third floor. We're pleased to have you here for a very special edition of our Writers Live series, also the Contemporary Museum on Center and was it Cathedral Streets has a collection of paintings about Miss Greer on display. So if you if you really get into her, like some of us are, you may want to go up and see the paintings up at the uh, Contemporary Museum on Cathedral and Center Streets. I'm sure many of you, especially the guys, fell in love with this evening's guest author. I personally have affinity for coffee. Foxy Brown. <laughs> I don't know if some of you remember Miami Vice, we had uh, Valerie Gordon. Above the Law with Steven Seagal, we had Dolores Jackson. <laughs> I guess probably most famous, Jackie Brown. <laughs> and re recently, she was Kit Porter. Miss Greer is a talent and inspiration to many and an icon to most. It's an honor for the Pratt Library to host Miss Pam Greer. Like you, I'm very eager to for her to discuss her wonderful book, new memoir, Foxy. Uh, this is something that may not be verbatim, but Miss Greer stated in a, an article I read recently, President Obama has got everyone to read again. I see some of us joining libraries every day. We're trying to keep up with him. If we don't keep up with him, how can we help? Thanks for saying great things about the library. I guess last uh, month we had 800 people for a book lover's breakfast to hear Hill Harper from CSI New York. That was basically a chick flick. We had 750 women, about 50 guys. Looks like we got 60% men. 40% women this time. To introduce our special guest tonight and truth into the library, we welcome Director of Community Relations Commission, Mr. Alvin Gillard. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Okay, all right. Good evening, everyone. We're, we're going to make this short because we want to get right to the guest, okay? Ladies and gentlemen, the iconic Pam Greer began her acting career and achieved great fame in the early 1970s when she starred in a number of popular films including Coffee, Foxy Brown, and Sheba Baby. Sheba Baby. In the 1990s, her performance as the title character in Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown earned her nominations for Best Actress from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's Golden Globe, the Screen Actors Guild, and the NAACP Image Award in 1997. She is strong, resilient, and centered, and has single-handedly shattered the misguided notion that beauty 
and brains are mutually exclusive. Please join me in welcoming to Baltimore and to the Pratt, the one and only, the author of Fox, My Life in Three Acts, Pam Greer. An extraordinary library. This is where our soul goes. Where we are in search of love, unity, the universe. It's just so beautiful, and we're all here tonight. This is just extraordinary. Thank you for your invitation. It's it's just wonderful to be here. Everyone, whoa, hey, I wouldn't miss it. I'm telling you. Um, I, the impetus for writing my memoir was to return to you all that I have received from you as an audience. Without the audience, there is no actor. And I'm an accessible actor, person, activist, all the things that people say and I believe in because I get my foxiness from all of you. You know what I'm talking about. I didn't dream it up myself. I would be working overtime. And so in my journey, I thought there are so many others who had shared their journeys with me and opened doors for me. Lena Horne and her book, Stormy Monday. Hattie McDaniels, who graduated from my high school in Denver, Colorado. The, the late Shirley Chisholm, the late Barbara Jordan. And Gloria Steinem put me on the cover of Ms. Magazine for being an, a vanguard for women, for opening doors for others at a very early age, because I understood what that meant. My mother surviving with us in the Jim Crow era, walking from tree to tree in the hot sun off of an air base trying to get back home. And I just said, you know, Mom, there's things that I learned from you. Falls and crawls, many of them. But there's a lot of laughter. I lived a lot. In it, we'll talk about, I know you want to hear about him. We can talk about Richard Pryor. One of our geniuses of, yes, to wherever he is. Richard and I met on the set of Grease Lightning. Um, it was a wonderful piece about Wendell Scott, the first black race car driver. And, and Richard was at, a, at a, a time in his life where he wanted to find out, okay, I've done drugs on my life. And you've heard, many of you have heard his albums. Mm-hmm, the Mudbone Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, as we began to date, I was a child of the women's movement the women's liberation movement, right? So he says, baby, come and live with me. No. You're so independent. He wanted to give me a fur coat, diamond rings, all of that. If I accept it, you know when you accept a gift from a man, that's that bond, that's a love. We know that. You have you testifying right here, right? Well, it may be the ugliest little pot or crock pot or skillet, whatever they're going to give you. Oh, baby, I love it. It's so beautiful. Thank you. And I couldn't take it because I had dogs, and my dogs would bark at her for a coat. Think you're going to do that to me? So, baby, okay. So he thought 
He may not be funny sober. That was his nightmare, his worst dream. So I said, no, we'll try. You'll never know who you are. You haven't known because you've been indulging since you were 10 years old. That's all you've known is who you are today for the last 40-some years. So he said, well, I'll try. I said, but it's okay. If you can't make it, I will not judge you. I will support you. And maybe you can try to manage because many geniuses, musical geniuses, painters indulge, but they managed it. You know, I'm not going to judge. I'll say I'm better and he's not or whatever. So Richard has this horse named Ginger. Mudbones Ginger. And Ginger was injured. So we didn't have a horse trailer. He was standing outside with his robe just sobbing. I said, if something happens to this horse, he's going to fall. I'll never, I'll never recover. We'll never get over this. So I said, Richard, stop crying. You're in your bathrobe with nothing on underneath. We're going to put this horse in the backseat of my Jaguar. And yes, we did. Four-door yellow Jag. It's in there. It's in the book. I said, you push, I'll pull, we'll put her in. There's a ho- her head is sticking out one side of the car, her tail's out the other. Get in the car, Richard, we gotta go. She's bleeding to death, come on, let's go. So we tear down the 405 from Reseda going to the vet. The car is bouncing, sparks, tailpipes are flying off. The car is fishtailing. White people are saying, there's two black people in a Jaguar with the horse in the back seat. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, what, what's going on here? There was a help, a help, we got to get to the vet. We got, they were trying to follow us, follow us, we'll get to the vet. Richard's crying, the horse is peeing in the back seat. And you know it's one of them Miss Rudolph moments where the monkey's flying around and the bat and blue piss is everywhere and I'm driving like a bat out of hell trying to get this horse and save this horse's life. We saved Ginger's life. Thank God. Thank God. And Richard turned to me and he said, you know what? I thought I was crazy. <laughs> but you crazy. You really crazy. And you don't even do drugs. I'm scared of you. Maybe I should think twice. And I said, no, I'm going to save a life. It's just a car. A great car, by the way. Jaguars, you can pull your horse around right in the back seat. <laughs> And with that, we became great friends. And, and it is not a kiss-and-tell memoir. I respect, maybe we didn't kiss enough. We were just funny. I don't know. Um, and, and with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who I met him at his last year of UCLA. He had just been drafted into the Milwaukee Bucks. And he had been embracing Islam. We are much more knowledgeable about Islam today than we were then. Now, here I am, remind you, I'm a child of the women's movement, women's liberation. We burned some bras, yes. I testifying over here. And I really loved him. He was my first love. He was tall, handsome, smart. He could dance. He loved to dance with shades on in the dark. It was great. Yes, he did. And so... He gave me the book, a Quran, and he gave me how to become a Muslim woman, and I had five months to embrace it. He had been learning his dogma, flying, traveling to, to Egypt, um, and he, he was so happy and at peace. And I could see, if I embrace it as well, I'll make him happy. I'll walk behind him. I can't touch his hand in public. I need a chaperone. I can't drive. I have to make him tuna fish sandwiches and leave the room. All kinds of things that I'd have to adhere to. So 
I said, well, when you love someone, okay. And then he said, well, you know, if I'm wife number one, will I approve wife number two? I said, how much you going to make? Can you afford it? <laughs> but that was a true dogma. That was a part of his religion. And I, gave, I respected him for that. So... Right about my birthday, he calls me and he says, hey, baby, how you doing? Happy birthday. And I say, hey, you know, you've been reading, I've been reading up on how to become a Muslim woman. It, it's fabulous. You know, I'm really interested in traveling and seeing the world. And, and, and you know, Islam is a monolithic community, but it's, it's varied. There are moderates and conservatives and fundamentalists and radicals and he was young and he didn't have a plan for us. Like, who would we be as a couple? He didn't know. So he says, so have you decided? Are you going to commit? And I said, can you give me more time? Can you just give me some more time? There's, I have questions I want to ask you. I have to take care of my mother. There's, i, I got to get an education. Maybe I won't go to film school. There's a lot of things we need to discuss. And he says, well, if you don't commit to me now... I'm going to get married to someone else this afternoon at 2 o'clock. <laughs> I had to respect that. Okay. As I pick myself up off of my shag carpeting, heartbroken, first love. And you know that song by Sting? When you love someone, you set them free. Free, free. I had to say, be well. Because I can't learn all that you've learned in a few months. And there's things that I need to do as a woman. If something happens to you, I need an education to fall back on. And I can't ask you to take care of my mother, who is paralyzed right now. I, I have some real issues. So I love you. And he married a wonderful woman and had wonderful children. And when his house burned down... He called me to go and see what was left of it because we were friends. In our relationships, you know, when the relationship and the love and the euphoria and the sex and the hoo-ha and all of that has died down and the reality has, has unveiled you, enveloped you, out of it I hope you have friendship. That's the greatest gift you can give to someone. And I will interject right now in, in, the, in the home birthplace of someone that I worked with. You all know her and her legacy. Her name was Tamara Dobson. When I met her, Tamara showed up with 16 pieces of Louis Vuitton luggage. Tall, statuous, stunning, Right out of New York. I said, I got Samsonite. <laughs> and she was going to do Cleopatra Jones. And brilliant film. Another legacy. And she was, and you from where? Colorado. And I drive a tractor. And I go hunting and fishing. And she's, where are you from again? I said, I'm from the Black West. My family homesteaded in Colorado before it was a state, before the emancipation. They homesteaded from the Underground Railroad. Lou Vuitton, the president of the Black West, the Black Rodeo, goes across this country 
telling the history of the Black West. And I, I write and I rope and I give exhibits of what my ancestry participated in. And I support that and the literacy of the Black West. We, I know we don't have it in schools, but it sure is interesting. So Tamara was just mesmerized. She said, oh my God, you do all that stuff? Yeah, I'm going to teach you how to shoot a gun too. And I said, and with nails? And she was said, you can do that? I said, yes. So she taught me makeup. We shared stories. She became my big sister. We were so close. And so I thought as our, she started to take a different direction as, and as well as I, I was going to more mainstream, I wanted to get Dorothy Dandridge made, I wanted to get Mary Fields, the first black stagecoach driver of the Mel Rotten Montana, I wanted to get her story made. You know, I started to develop and they were saying, oh yeah, you can do those things. And we lost track of one another. And I thought we could do a buddy picture. And years later, time passes, and I hear, I, I said, okay, I'm, I want to do my memoir. I, I, there's a lot of people I want to contact. And one of the people I want to contact is Tamara. So I'm looking for, where is she? Is she married? Does she have children? And I found out, I discovered that she was in a nursing home. She was very ill. And I, I understand, hopefully I'm correct, that she passed away from MS. So did Richard. And I signed her memorial on, online, which is fantastic to have such a social network and I really missed out on not having her share our stories, and I wanted her to be there. So with it, I honor her. I give her homage in my book, as most women in my book. Um, and you'll get to hear about, as I... Well, there is a time where one day I go into my doctor's office, and he tells me, that I have cancer and I have 18 months to live. And I thought maybe there was a mix-up in the files. He says, no. Mm -mm. Now, I still live in Colorado. I'm visiting this doctor, and I have no symptoms. I'm running seven miles a day, and I feel fantastic, and I hit a wall. It was just an extraordinary day, I must say. And... I proceeded to have the surgery and all of that, uh, the, the operations, and there was a boyfriend at the time. He was so afraid of my illness that he abandoned me. He didn't come to the surgeries. He was afraid. He drank. He wouldn't answer my phone calls. Um, I, I was saddened by that. But we, there, many of you have the experiences of someone abandoning you when you're really sick or a family member is ill. And that hit me. That was a really good shot. So my doctor says, but I'm going to send you to Chinatown. The yin and the yang, balance in life. That's what I always want you to search for, the balance in life. So I go down to Chinatown, and every walk of life is going to this herbal shop. And there's many. And I'm, I said, where have I been? This is, this is outstanding. I, ha I, I might have a chance and I really believe that that night, after coming home from the herb shop, there was a, on PBS a Bill Moyers documentary called Mind Over Matter. And he was visiting the shamans and practitioners, wellness practitioners all over the world. And he was in China, and there was, there was this woman who was on a table, and she had a tumor on her back. It was the size of the tumor that, was inside, that had been inside of me. And... 
they they filmed it for five weeks. They performed acupressure, acupuncture, herbs, massage, and teas. And in five weeks, this tumor flattened out on camera. That was my sign. That was my message. Bill Moyer saved my life because from that day, I absolutely adhered to the instruction, go to Chinatown, search for balance. And people have come up to me, as gracious as you've been, and said, you, you look so great. You look, you look healthy and you're beautiful. And it's just amazing that I'm here. And I say, you know, I don't define myself by my age, but I, find, I define myself by my energy. And that's the confidence. Your, your beauty is your confidence. Your confidence to get exercise, find the right food, go to Chinatown, drink the right water, get rid of stress, deal with hormones, and your man. So these are all wonderful things that have happened to me. Now, there is, I have to share this with you. There's this time where there was a movie called Jackie Brown. A man named Quentin Tarantino, one of the top pop iconic directors, decided to, to write it for me, invest two years of his life. That was that's humbling. That's just, I, I, you know, and after I met him, I realized what a genius he wanted to do his Foxy Brown. And that would be Jackie Brown. Back in the day, our, our scenes were so long. They were 15 minutes long, 10 minutes long, because we didn't have the budget to do a lot of post-cutting. So Quentin said, okay, now in this scene, when you get out of jail, when Jackie gets out of jail and Ordell comes to kill you, it's a 15-minute scene, and I want you guys to not drop a line. So I go, okay, we can do that. And Sam says, mm. So I said, Sam, we can do it. We can do this. He said, I don't know. I said, 15 minutes? Little did I know. He had spent three days lighting that scene. There were lights under a tree leaf, under here, up there. You know, he, he spent every nook and cranny putting a light in so we could be lit. Then he blocked our, our movement on the floor. So I said, this is a lot. This is a dance. I got to get from the door as Ordell comes in, goes to the window, opens it to see who's going to hear me die. Then I have to go to the record player and then go to my purse, take out a cigarette, light it, get the gun, put the gun in my belt, go to the refrigerator, take out the ice cubes, the gin and the orange juice, pour him a glass and act like, hi. And I said, oh my God, this is going to be unbelievable. Can I do this? He says, you can do this. This is why I wrote the movie for you. You have a memory. I go, oh, thank you. So I said, all I'm asking is let me go to the apartment for three days prior to shooting. I need to just learn this, rehearse it over and over and over again because I don't want to miss a mark. I don't want to miss a light. I don't want to miss, I don't want you to cut. I, you wrote this for me. I want you to be proud of me. I can do this. I can do this. And we did it fabulously. And they never saw the gun. No one ever saw it. If you see, it's a fifth, the longest scene in cinema. He had to write it. So I thought, okay, that, this is wonderful. Thank you. So um, don't take this literally, but I do owe him at least one child for him writing this movie for me. Okay, maybe a boy, I'll raise it. He'll have his chin, a tan, and a fro. You know, I, that's what we do for women. We give him a child. Here. 
but he, I was so humble that he would write that for me and have Robert De Niro and Michael Keaton and Samuel Jackson and Bridget Fonda and Robert Forster in this wonderful piece. It was just, and of course, he said, now people can really see your work. So I get a movie every 10 years. It's okay. Uh, right now, um, I just finished the uh, Larry Cruz film starring, written, acted, produced by Tom Hanks. I played Julia Roberts' best friend. We're, we're professors at a university. It's a timely story. Tom Hanks loses his job. He's in the Navy, and he has to go back to school to reinvent himself to get a degree so he can keep a job. And it's very timely, a wonderful story, very poignant. And then I was, uh, I'm enjoying the ride on Smallville as Amanda Waller, <laughs> Ph.D., um, I get to hang out with Superman, who wears no tights. Uh, and Amanda Waller was, in, in 1988, she was the first African-American uh, character in DC Comics. She wasn't a superhero, but she's a PhD. I am personally a, a, a disciple, a student of Sun Tzu, The Art of War, which I found in a library. Scary. Um, and they gave me that position. It was fantastic. It was picked up for a 10th season. We'll all be back. It was just great. And this woman, she's out of Chicago. She's bright. She's stealth. She's, she's a general. She protects the Pentagon and the president. Very interesting character. And then, of course, I was able to do a show, a series for Showtime called The L Word. And I get to play drunk kid. It was great. But I got to hang out with Snoop Dogg, sing with Snoop Dogg, Nona Hendricks. Um, and I, I had to do the show because here was a community that I was ignorant of. I did not know of the depth of their hardships and what they had been going through as a community. And in order for me to do that and be a beacon, one of the greatest gifts I could have received was when someone walked up to me. A lady, and at another time a man, and they said, because of the L word and me, that they had found their family member and reunited with them and apologized to them. And I, I can't make judgment. I can't make rules. I can just live and love. And it was so gratifying to see people tell me that they had reunited with their family members. I can't imagine having a son or a daughter, and because they feel and know they're different, that I exclude them from the family. I send them away. I don't give them love. I don't honor them being a miracle in this universe. I could not imagine. And so to have that experience and meet wonderful friends for life and have showtime, put, stick their necks out for a, a series to go six years. We are now in Russia Czech Republic, Netherlands, all over the world, 23 countries where women are oppressed, and to, for me to be a part of it. And then now they see me in the L word, and they want to see what else have you done. They're going back and revisiting the box set, Fox in a Box, Foxy, Foxy, <laughs> Coffee, Foxy Brown, Shiva, all of the, the films. They're now more interested in the culture. They're looking outside of their box at cinematography. It's fantastic. I've just opened the eyes of so many people. It's just amazing. And a lot of the events, I mean, it could have, my book could have been a, a legacy, a rambling legacy. 
but I wanted it to be in acts, like a, a play or uh, a screenplay in three acts, where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a summary. And um, I thought, okay, what are the events that influence my character? Who, who, who am I? Who have I found myself to be that I can share from my mentors, share with all of you, that I've gotten from all of you, that I've gotten from the library, watching, you know, History Channel, PBS, NPR, just from all my experiences. There was a, a director named Tim Burton. Beetlejuice. What's in that man's mind? I want what he's smoking. And I don't smoke, but I'll do it. He's creative. Ooh. So his assistant calls me up one day. I'm in, in the mountains. And um, one of my dogs, Magic Johnson. <sighs> and now, Madge had been with me when I was sick with cancer. And he would lie across my tummy, guard my door. Him and Buckwheat. Matt, uh, Buckwheat was named by Eddie Murphy. Eddie came over just that I had gotten a dog and you know and you'd be surprised who comes up to, to my house to eat so um, Magic was very very ill and I, I told this is I'm sorry I can't come an audition he's doing a movie I know I'm sorry it's a comedy about big-headed Martians I know I can't come thank you and I had to turn him down now, how often am I going to get a call from Tim Burton to do a movie with Jim Brown playing my husband, Ray J playing my son in D.C. about a fabulous show called Mars Attacks. Jack Nicholson, Glenn Close, Warner Brothers, lots of money everywhere. But I said, I can't do it, thank you. So they called me a week later, and they said, well, you know, can you put something on tape? I said, what, me sobbing? I can't right now. Thank you. I would love to. It's just, I'm sorry. He's fantastic. I wish I could you know, tell him personally, but I can't do it. I'm sorry. Because um, I wouldn't give him the performance that I would want him to see. So a week later, Tim Burton calls. Hi, Tim. This is Tim Burton. Hi. How are you? I'm sorry. He says, um, I understand your your." Your dog, uh, I said, my partner, he's taking care of me. Is he? I said, yes, he is, and he's terminal. He doesn't have long, and I want to be here with him. He was there with me when I was very ill with, with cancer. And um, he said, okay. He says, well, I said, I'm sorry I can't do it. So have a great shoot. I love your work. You know, thank you. And he says, wait, wait, wait. He says, you have passed the screen test. The character that I want to hire you for is a woman who would never leave her children for anyone. When the Martians are coming to kill them, you will not leave. You will protect them. You will not leave. So you won the role. So out of saying no, living up to my principle, I realized who I was. I was going to lose out on a lot of money. And I'm taking care of five families and mortgages and houses and people in school and college. But I said, no, I can't do it. And he says, well, wait. I want you to do this movie. And so we will take good care of you and we'll shoot around you. I really want you to do this. And I said, thank you. He says, because you turned me down. 
It wasn't about money or greed or you being all that. And I said, well, thank you. So when you least expect it, when you say no, there's this great gift that comes to you. The law of attraction, perhaps. I read The Secret. I see you all have it well, you too. Yeah, I won the lottery too, by the way. The day that I read The Secret, talked about, hmm, okay, wish for something. You can wish for something big. Most people say afraid of wishing for bigger things, so you wish for a small thing. And I said, hmm, okay, I'll try this one day. I don't know when. So I thought of it. I said, it's interesting, the philosophies of this wonderful book that 14 million people read so I go to this little mall shop, and this guy from Nepal, he brought over his family, and it's like a little 7-Eleven, and, and it's 95 degrees outside, and he's wearing a down comforter and, and a hat, and, he, and I speak to him all the time, and he says, Miss Pound, you, you should buy a lottery ticket. It's like some gazillion dollars or whatever. I go, yeah, right. Why don't I just give you the money and set it on fire, okay? I just don't, I don't know. He says, well, you should, because you have good magic. You have good magic. You should try. So I said, okay. So how much I got, well, I got to pay, what do I do? He says, yeah, I'll do it for you. And so I says, he says, pick a number. I goes, and I give him five, like $6. It was a Powerball plus power play. And so I, we play it. Three weeks later, I'm walking around with the tickets in my purse. And he'd been waiting for someone who bought the ticket to show up. So I go and I says, so what do you think I got? $5, something like that, $10? He says, let's see, you have to go down to the office. So I won, like, what, $300? He says, I don't know. He says, you have to go down to the office. I don't have that much money. I said, well, how much money are you talking about? So I drive on down to the lottery office. Hi, how are you? And here's my ticket. So, you know, I'm thinking $300. I won $30,000. It had been in my purse for three weeks. I could have thrown it out with the lint and the buttons and the other gum wrappers in the bottom of my purse. So I, I gave the money to charity. I built a 4,000-square-foot house housing animals and a shelter, Pals for Life, that's near my ranch. I do a lot of fix-up work, take my tractor there. I put up fences. I, I buy hundreds of pizzas for all the volunteers that come out. And I bought this house, you know, because we have the foreclosure debacle that's hit our country. People are abandoning their dogs. So it housed 100 dogs. Now it houses 200 dogs. And the rest of the money, I know I'll work. I know I have a mission. God will keep me walking. Goddess will keep me straight. I gave the money to friends and family who needed mortgages paid and house payments and a new car and things like that. So I gave all the money away because I, that was such a gift from the universe for me. And I gave the guy $300 for his family. And, you know, I literally, my cars are 10 years old, my trucks. I don't, I don't need much. I don't sit around a pool eating chocolates. I'd like that, but I don't think I can. I have way too much family and things to do in my life because I was given a second chance to be here with you. And I, I don't, I, I'm sure many of you have, have experienced what I've experienced in life the near-death experiences um, and watch family members slip through your fingers. I experienced so much of that in my book. But wisely, I am guided and focused 
And I don't take for granted. I have to drive in a snowstorm to go to California to audition or to work. But I'm there on time. I'm grateful. I'm very respectful. And I want to see, you know, if we can continue to keep our filmmaking going in other parts of the country. We have fabulous cities, whether it's a university or independent companies, bring more film to Baltimore, to Detroit, to Louisiana. That's employment. That's an infrastructure. And also literacy. As you read my book, there might be people you know who can't read. And I'm one of those people that I've called up vending companies. Excuse me, there's no Braille on the buttons here. I had to decide a man wanted to buy water and there was no Braille on. He was blind and he asked me to help him select the water from a vending machine. So I called him up. I said, why is there Braille on the buttons on the front so people who, have, who, who are sight impaired can buy juice and water off of your machine? Oh, there isn't? No. And I'm going to call the mayor and the governor and the president. He's my friend. I'm going to tell him what's going on. But those are things that we overlook in our daily lives. And, and, you know, and I just do care for others. It could be me. I've had illnesses and things where I could have awakened and been totally blind. And how would I feel going to a Home Depot and outside I'm trying to buy water and I don't know which button. So just little things like that. And when you read Foxy, if there's someone you can read to, have the read to seniors, people who are sight impaired, have a party with five or six people in your living room, having tea or Jack Daniels, <laughs> champagne. Yeah, you heard, oh, the Jack Daniels family is here tonight. I was a scholar on Jack Daniels. I got straight A's on Jack Daniels. Yeah, two fingers straight up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a two-finger man right there with the hat on. Yeah, two, three, five, mm-hmm. I know how you feel. Yeah. You have some now? You left it at home? Why you come here without Uncle Jack? You know, you know my story. <laughs> okay, one question. First of all, he said, how can... I come get him and take him to my house. Are you allergic to dogs and chickens and turkeys? Your dog saved you from getting robbed. Yes. He's nine years old. That's fabulous. Um, or are you married? You're single? And you're here alone? He's single, everyone. A lot of women are here looking for you. You are a hero. Can you drive a tractor and go fishing and hunting and all of that kind of stuff? Well, thank you for giving yourself to me. I might call you one late night. You know, I, hey, I'm writing that down. I'll get your address later. You can also hit me, hit me on Facebook. It, when you read the book, yes, I have a f friend site and five fan sites, and I'm on Twitter. And I have met so many wonderful people on Facebook. You back again? <laughs> you won't quit. Oh, I love you too. Sign language, I love you. Great, great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's time for me to go now.